Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Daniel, super excited to have you on the show. It's really interesting to have you because you are someone which is tech enabled services in the cleaning space, which is a tough business, but also doing this with Heart of Gold. And so I'm excited to have you on the show. Thank you, Jeremy. Excited to be on the Brave podcast. First time here. <laughs> so, Daniel, for those who don't know you yet, how would you introduce yourself professionally? Well, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a founder of Nimbus, so I'm CEO and founder. I started Nimbus 2017. So after a stint helping two startups, building two startups from scratch, I ended up in the B2B cleaning space where we do facilities management for offices, gyms and buildings, etc. So it's been a journey and I think these journeys are correlated from my previous experiences. So happy to share with fellow entrepreneurs about this journey that I took. So how did you first get the bug to join technology and entrepreneurship? Because you were a naval diver, you're a philosopher. So how do you even get there? Because you were at London School of Economics, you were at Oxford, but nothing there really screams you know, technology. Yeah, I would say it's a bit accidental as an entrepreneur. So I think my journey started when I followed basically the normal track where I was going to be a consultant in the UK because I studied in the UK, as you mentioned. And by some stroke of luck, I decided, or, or unfortunate luck, is that I, I decided to take a year off before I started my role, which was very common back then. Before you start a consulting gig, where you can say like, I, I'll take a, a gap year or whatever. So the idea was to kind of explore this entrepreneurial side of myself. But of course, that year, 2014 or 15, coincided with Brexit. It was a wonderful coincidence that that happened. And so after that gap year, when I went to China and Hong Kong, I, I was told that there was basically regulations on the quotas. And so you've got to go back to Southeast Asia. So how I became an entrepreneur and, and how I got into tech was completely accidental in the sense that I didn't see myself going to tech. But when some sort of a, a stable role like consulting didn't turn out to be so stable after all, I came back to, to Singapore, which is my home country. And then that's when I started to look at what are people doing that were more cool? And I stumbled into the tech scene in Singapore. And that's how I started building tech startups for other people, starting with a equity crowdfunding platform called Funded Here, which was really my first kind of job after consulting. Amazing. What was it like joining that first tech company? Uh, to be honest with you, I, I didn't know what to expect. I was referred by a friend. At that time, we, we heard about crowdfunding platforms in UK. The pitch was that this is the first like equity crowdfunding platform in, in Asia. So I was just basically sold that, okay, you get to build everything from scratch on the business side of things. Business development sounded cool. So I just jumped into that opportunity to basically build something. And I think it was exciting to get a sense that Asia seems to be lagging behind at that time to a lot of innovations we saw in the West. And then I just wanted to be part of building something. At that time, I don't think I was confident enough to start my own business. My parents were entrepreneurs. So I kind of felt like I should start a business one day, but I, I didn't feel as a graduate in philosophy, as you mentioned, that I was equipped to, to do anything else. But uh, besides flip, flipping burgers in McDonald's, I was not sure what I could do. 
And so when when someone gave you a chance to build uh, tech companies in Southeast Asia, I obviously jumped at that, that chance. So that was that was really how, how I got into it. And what did you learn from joining this company? What was do you remember? What was it like when you join a startup? In Southeast Asia, you at least the, the companies that I joined, they usually do not have more than 20, 30 people in HQ at least. These are the two companies that I work for. And when you are employee number five or employee number 15, a lot of things needs to be done. I think it's kind of exciting in the sense that you get to define processes or define how you think things should be done. So there was that sort of exhilaration in that, that, that sense. And I think I'm quite a you know, as a, as, a, as a free spirit guy, you, you really enjoy kind of shaping things as they go along and, and figuring out hard problems for yourself. I think that was what really honed kind of like business acumen, how to do sales, how to do BD. Basically, you don't get much hand-holding in a startup of this size in Singapore or Southeast Asia. You're basically expected to be smart enough to figure it out. So yeah, I figured it out. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't even know whether till today that's stuff that is, is quite basic to people or not, but you do find that you get more hands-on skills versus your peers who perhaps took the more typical path and worked in MNCs or banks or consulting firms because you're a lot more hands-on. You hustle a lot more. You don't get clients on your plate, right? You've got to find them and then you've got to service them. You've got to figure out how contracts are done. All that sort of thing, my bosses basically always told me to figure it out on my own. <laughs> That's a tough part, right, in early stage companies is you're always being told to figure it out on your own. Yeah. So how do you figure it out on your own? Anyway, the way the bosses, usually how Southeast Asian works was that it was very greenfield. That's always what they will tell you. And they'll tell you that uh, it's a, it's basically a paid for MBA, which was very alluring to me because I, I always considered after graduating to take an MBA. So from the perspective of figuring it on your own, I, I assumed that I was just given a playbook, which I was usually, some sort of word doc. But then you got to learn that and then kind of build on top of that Google doc. So I would say that uh, 10% of that, that document is useful, but then that 90% is really Googling. I had to launch a press. I remember that we didn't have budget to do press releases. We didn't have budget to hire anybody except for interns. So figuring out usually entails you walking into, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of somebody that is uh, an expert. Let's say, you know, I was a, a business development associate, right? But I I put myself in the shoes of a proper business development person would do and then I imagine what he would do it and then I do it. That's basically how I have always figured that out. So so on the equity crowdfunding side, it was very simple. It was two-sided marketplaces. So you had to find startups that needed fundraising and they wanted to give up a stake on their company to in exchange for that. But you need to make sure that they are good companies and then so you also have to make sure that the investors are excited about it. So on the supply side, I figured out that you had to kind of hit the universities hit these deep tech laboratories, which this is pre-entrepreneurialness, by the way. So we went down to the campus levels. And then on the demand side, where you talk about investors, then it's really about helping my boss build up his community of influencers and, and affluent people and, and getting them excited about angel investing, which is very different from normal kinds of investing. So that has a more predefined kind of theory on, on how that works. On the startup side, I think that was a bit of a, there was no playbook on how do you find good companies. You just... You start hitting universities, you start reviewing pitch decks. Yeah, I was, I was playing the role of a VC for a while, which was really funny. 
Yeah. <laughs> and there you decided to make the jump to a second company and to be an early employee again. And yeah. you know, the first time, of course, you do it because you have no idea what being an early employee is. Yeah. So you do it out of ignorance. And then the second time, you know what you're getting into. So why did you decide to be an early employee again of a tech company? Yeah. So I, I think the first company, FinTech and all, when I joined that company, I, I realized that it was actually a chairman model. I'm not sure. What, I think you're familiar with this way. It actually turns out to be an established company where the boss is already rich. So he, he so-called founded another company, but he's not really an active founder. I realized that that was not quite the startup experience that I really wanted to do in its purest form. So some friends of mine from Oxford, this was from the Oxford connection where they were building a services marketplace this time around. And once again, it's a marketplace and I thought I knew how that worked. They were building a, a marketplace and they were launching B2C services marketplace and they were expanding from Malaysia to Singapore. And then they wanted someone that they knew and they wanted to, to launch Singapore as a, as a general manager. So I was suddenly given a very big responsibility. Then I was sold the equity dream for what early employees promised in pro- proper startup. So actually, I would say the reasons why I joined the second company was really because I really still wanted to dive deeper into how startups work as a kind of a thing. And, and this time around, this second company was venture-backed. And it was exciting to just learn about how that works. And so I jumped at the chance of it, of joining that company, because I think the first version was more of like a new business unit as opposed to a real startup where it's like, it just got fresh funding, it's expanding, got a big role. You hear about ESOP for the first time in your life. You're not sure what that is. <laughs> yeah, you meet everybody. It's, it's this time around, it's a bigger team, 30 to 40 people. You're excited. It's in Malaysia. Grab came from Malaysia. You, you hear good things about Malaysian products. And then that's how I, I made the lead to launch Singapore for mobile services marketplace called Service Hero. So they wanted to do a Grab play for local services, which is basically using your mobile phones to find blue-collar workers like cleaners and plumbers and handymans, technicians, etc. on a kind of a reverse yellow page model, which is equivalent to Thumbtack in the US more than, say, TaskRabbit, right? It was, it was really like a lead generation model. And that was quite unique, interesting. And given that I built Marketplace before, they, they thought that I was relevant for that. So I was very grateful to be hired as a GM there. And that's how I, how I made the leap pretty much define my later path, but we'll talk more about that later. But that, that was why I made the decision to go to the second company. One interesting part is that you're building very different things, which is one is finance, and other one is a very services marketplace, which is a totally different margin structure. Yeah. You're just building, you're pushing, it's also venture back. So, yeah. so what would you say is the big difference in tempo between the first company and the second company? Yeah, I, I think the main difference is when something is founder-led and when something is, when it's not a chairman model where there's an established a senior guy that has this idea and then he tasks younger folks to build it versus the founder is your age or like slightly three years older than you. He's raised funds. The energy level is different. You feel you are, it's a more flat environment. You feel that everybody's dreaming and everybody wants to build this great dream and vision. And this was why I was so compelled to to join them. Just for some context, my family, my grandmother was a cleaner. So this idea of kind of improving livelihoods, right, which was kind of like the grab story when it went out as well, was highly appealing, especially because I was raised by blue-collar workers. And so I was very attracted to this idea of how technology can really disrupt and transform this sector, which I have observed firsthand as I was raised by blue-collar workers. And I think that the young energy, the fact that everyone was on your, at the same age, all dreaming on the same vision, technology, business or operations, 
made it very exciting. That was really, I think, a real proper startup, right? And the fact that, of course, they raised money and that was my first experience as well of what it means to be venture-backed, right? where you are basically ex- on accelerated time and you have to kind of hit certain milestones to really unlock next rounds of funding or it's game over, which is a very scary thing. <laughs> yeah. So tell me more about what you said, equity dream versus game over. Tell us more about that. The idea that I think most people nowadays are more familiar with, and back then it was more unconventional in 2015, was this idea that you would take a salary cut as an employee, you would get a substantially or slightly below market average salary to basically get some pay, but also some percentage of the company. Typically, companies will have 10% or 5% or even 15% pool of shares for their employees. We were sold at least the idea, and I, I, and I don't think this is unique to this company, but every startup nowadays would sell you this idea that you're basically a business owner. If you stay long enough, you unlock that equity, you are a business owner, and that when things work out well, tremendously well, because we're going to list the company, we're going to be able to sell it later on at a very handsome valuation, it's going to play out well in your longer term kind of return on investment and time. So that was kind of the game, so-called you were saying that we were that was uh, quite new to me. I mean, in hindsight, I think more can be educated on this front for employees of startups. I think we, we have a lot of people that cover startup entrepreneur stories, but not so much about what do you do if you're a startup employee? What do you consider before you join a startup? At that time, I just relied on the fact that I knew people that belong in that startup and they seemed like reasonable guys. And so I took the plunge. So here's a chance. What advice would you give to people? What would you really say, like, you know, you need to know before you join a startup? Because there's so many startups these days, right? Yeah. So top three things that you need to, like, make sure you know before you go in. So I think the first thing is that I think don't be afraid to ask some very relevant questions. Like, if a company tells you that here's some ESOP for you, it's 1%, it's worth like a million dollars. I think a lot of times when you are young and you are not sure what you can ask, you actually should be asking founders about their traction, about how do they see this playing out to be a $100 million company and what are their current tractions. And I think a lot of the times when I was young, at least I, I dare not ask, I thought it was very uncomfortable to ask a founder for sensitive numbers because, I don't know, maybe I'm Asian, I, I feel very, it's a very you know, you, you don't ask these questions. But I'm sure you know Jeremy in, in Silicon Valley as well. A proper tech company would have a very transparent culture. The founders, if they are good founders, would be very transparent with all their employees about their current state of affairs, their runway, their burn, their, their runway, how long do they have left before they run out of money, what's their revenue like, what's their user base like, etc. So I, I think the first thing to know is really to be prepared to ask questions about the company. And even if you feel it's uncomfortable, you, you have the right to know certain things before you make an informed decision because it's an informed decision. Number two, I would say is really do your due diligence. Don't assume that they say that they have all these in place, that these are in place. I think same thing as how companies ask for reference checks for candidates. I think it's also fair for prospective employees to ask if indeed these venture funds have backed them, if indeed people that work in the company really rate the CEO well. Because at the end of the day, startups are all about investing in people. And if the management is not strong, you're going to have problems. So it's, it's good to kind of also know the people you're dealing with beyond the traction, right? The, the ethics of the people that you're dealing with. And, and this goes to number three, which is that startups usually at the very early stage, at least from what I know, seed stage, series A, when they promise you stock options or we call it magic beans or whatever you want to call it, a lot of the times the 
it's it's not ready, right? And I don't think you blame them, right? Le- the legals are not ready sometimes. The agreements are not in place, but they, they, they may put it in email writing. So it goes back to point two. Know the people behind the firm. If the traction works out, know the people behind the firm. You really trust their ethics. And then the third thing is, of course, make sure that the paperwork is there, right? Make sure that the promises are made in some form of black and white. Could be email, could be WhatsApp. Because at the end of the day, you want to make sure that you protect yourself. Because as an employee's point of view, you are taking a substantial wage cut to join a startup. And I guess why do startups need to people to take a wage cut is because they are not cash rich. They would prefer to conserve their cash. And so that's why they are offering equity, right? And equity is expensive. And when I was young, I, I wish I knew that, right? Equity is expensive. And so be very wary when people are giving out equity and make sure that it's, it's indeed a very good deal. So that is, I think, the owners of the, the folks that are thinking of joining a startup. Wow, that's a lot of truth there. And I love what you said about magic beans. <laughs> that's, I never heard it described that way, but I think documentation is important for both sides. I think there's uh, good faith employers and there are bad faith employers. I think there are also good faith employees. Yes. And I think there's also bad faith employees as well. So I think it's documentation protects both sides. Yes. And so what's interesting is that now you've had two early stage experiences as employees at two companies and now you suddenly decide like, you know what? I've had two crazy experiences at two crazy companies yeah. and now it's time for me to make my own crazy company of my own. Yeah. Well, what made you decide to become a founder? Yeah, so if you go back to the start of the, the podcast where why I wanted to take a gap year to pursue entrepreneurial activities, why I built startups for others was because I think deep down, I guess some part of me wanted to build something on my own next time. But I didn't know what it was and I didn't feel that I was equipped to have the skill set to do it from the get-go. And so why I decided to kind of build my own thing finally was because after having built enough experience under my belt, also having witnessed kind of success and failures of startups, I started to become more confident about certain ideas. And in particular, when I was in the B2C services marketplace, it was brutal, man. I So, so the B2C space taught me a lot. It taught me that no venture fund can save you if your business model is not working, right? Not enough money in the world can save you. And it was very competitive and Pretty much like what you see now in Lazada and, and Shopee still today, even at that highest level, you're still burning a lot of money. Truth be told, of course, we, we raised subsequent milestones, etc. I didn't feel quite comfortable with this idea of like, we're running out of cash in six months. So great, we raised funds, we have 18 more months. After a while, you start to feel a bit like the first startup where, okay, I wish I had a rich backer. It will give me that assurance that I'm not always going to have the clock restarted, right? But then at the same time, you kind of want to kind of innovate and, and have that energy. So I kind of wanted to figure out, is there a, a middle ground, especially given the fact that at least at my point, I, I felt like the fundraising scene in Southeast Asia was still very difficult to, you know, you don't, you can't count on just venture funds. If the funds pull out, then there was this huge right-sizing kind of event that is unpleasant. So, so I think those experiences shaped me. And, and I think because I, I spent longer time in the services marketplace side, I, I realized that the, the B2B side was very unexplored and it was not an angle that the company was going down the road to because it was a B2C services marketplace. Whereas at the same time, office managers from Uber or Stripe, they were coming to me to say, hey, Dan, can you just kind of give me a total facility solution? Someone that can not just clean my space, but move my furniture around do some event cleanup support, decorate my office. I just want to do one person, right? I don't want to deal with like your app all the time. And that's when I realized 
that there was something there to the B2B side that was kind of like unexplored. And so when I left the venture craziness of the second company, I, I started to think deeper about can there be a more cash cash preserving model where you don't follow that, that kind of price war game. And that's when I dabbled into B2B. And it's quite natural, right? I think when you're young, you don't know much about the world except for how you consume things. So your, your natural ideas are B2C ideas where these are pretty much businesses and business models that are in your face. So it's very natural that we, we look at B2C. But as, as I had two or three years experience in technology and, and, and in service sector, you start to see B2B ideas as well. And you start to appreciate why facilities management is a very unsexy but a very exciting space from the point of view of entering and disrupting, disrupting something very archaic. Yet at the same time, that business model is, is kind of proven. So that was really how I, I thought about my current company, Nimbus, and how we basically, after I left and spent about a year in, 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 a, in a venture builder company, I looked at, at starting my own B2B kind of enterprise tech-enabled company. Yeah. As you built this, how do you think you have built your company differently as a result of your previous two experiences? So one that you mentioned was obviously designing it to be B2B instead of B2C for services. The other one was cost being very much more mindful about cash flow and your venture capital space dynamics. How else have you built your company to be more built upon the foundations of your previous learnings? Yeah, so the, the thing I learned about B2C is that the, a lot of the, the tech is front-facing. You have a shiny ad, you, your ad needs to be superb because consumers have high expectations. Your fundraising platforms needs to be really solid. Not, nobody would put money in there. But B2B is a lot more so-called invisible so, for example, the tech that we saw, you go back to the idea of like when I was talking to a lot of office managers about needing a consolidated experience, you basically realize that they trust you because you have a tight operation. How do you get a tight and efficient operation through technology? Well, you've got to think about back end instead of front end. You've got to think about how do you manage efficiently hundreds of workers and then create a system where these workers are basically upselling stuff for you on the ground because your cleaners are your air stewardess, right, of the plane. They are, they, are the, they are the ones serving your customer. They are the ones interacting with your customer every day. They are the ones seeing facilities faults on the ground and they are the ones rectifying. So how do you build stuff that will give accountability to your client space and at the same time create opportunities to upsell? So this value proposition was not as front-facing as most people think like, oh, it's a shiny app. So you're not solving a UX booking problem. You're solving a, how do you create very seamless tech-enabled operations so that it works like magic and the customer just feels like the operations you're running is very smooth and it's something they understand, right? So the key difference, I think, as well for what I learned was that cash is very important and B2C, there was a lot of emphasis on, on market share and not so much on like just basically revenue recognition and collecting cash on time and even sometimes making profit. So for us, we also learned that experience and basically went down a more sensible route where you're basically charging for a subscription, for cleaning, you're, 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 you're upselling stuff and you're just charging, you're making sure that you have systems that consolidate invoices the way clients want it, but also kind of collecting things timely and that sort of thing, right? So a lot of the mistakes I would say I learned from, from so-called B2C young companies that burn money and I kind of went the other direction and I'm not criticizing kind of companies that do that because obviously Shopee and Lazada have built tremendous businesses. But I would say that it might not be for everybody. So I realized quickly on as you're in a venture back company and then, you know, runway is eight months and six months, 16 months, that I was not very comfortable with doing that. 
And I think it's to do with me as a person. I don't think very well when there's a shot clock. I'm forced to make a big decision in, in six months. I think better maybe as a philosopher when I have time to read, time to ponder. So I, I felt that a B2B model worked better for me. And, and with enterprises, you're not dealing with consumers. You're dealing with people that pay you on time, but you need to make sure that you, know, you collect their, their credits on time, but they'll pay you and it's regular, it's frequent. You're not dealing with a micro-consumer and you're not you know, worried about that kind of churn in, in the level that B2C does. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's interesting because you've been bootstrapping this and building this in a very structured way. It's also interesting because you're building in a very unsexy business, right? Yeah. <laughs> because it's, yeah. you know, it's tech-enabled services. And so do you ever feel like all these other people are all like busy fundraising with these very sexy business models and sexy fundraising models in the rounds? And you, there you are chucking along, cleaning their offices, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what does that feel like? Yeah. yeah, you get it all the time. I mean, I, a lot of my friends run startups, right? And a lot of times you're right that some, some of them are my customers and you just see them on this crazy trajectory. The first point to make is that I've been there in those venture back style companies. So I know that deep down the hood, you're worried about different things. You're worried about runway, you're worried about all these things that I don't like to be worried about. So it helps that I've experienced that before. The second thing was that on cleaning. So having done services marketplace, I think one thing I realized and I don't and I think people should should know that by but after so much coverage in the news is that the cleaning industry is a huge industry. It's billions of dollars. And I noticed when I was running a marketplace that all my all my cleaning vendors were extremely wealthy. And, and to me, it's one of those things that, that's not very obvious because it's very unsexy. At the same time, it was very inefficient. It's very manually run. It's payroll is done on a pen and paper, like Excel at best. And you see so much opportunities to, to create efficiencies here with technology, simple technology. So, for example, our crew, they pretty much work on a mobile phone. They, they go around doing their work on a mobile phone. We track everything. We Payroll is, is seamless. Whereas these sorts of inefficiencies creates this opportunity that I saw in a big market. That, that was my perspective at that time. Of course, it has its challenges, but what I saw was competition. And although competition seemed large, competition was easy. And, and I think this goes to Peter Thiel's point that you, you try to avoid competition. You try to avoid red ocean markets where it's bloody and you are basically operating on extremely thin margins. So, so Nimbus's model, which aggregates all kinds of services, which provides a holistic experience, actually allows us to be higher than market in terms of the price that we can charge, as well as, I think, in terms of the overheads that we use to run our business, substantially light, uh, leaner. Of course, there was this R&D up front. That's why basically we still needed to kind of bootstrap and then get to a point where we can cover our tech overheads. But it was a journey. And then the, the other thing I learned is that because it, it, it took so long, I, I also know now that what you hear in the media about startups and entrepreneurs is it's just 5% of the tip of the iceberg. We don't know the struggles of these guys. We know that it may look glamorous on the outside, but every company, every entrepreneur probably goes through their difficulties. So it's, it's not always rosy on the outside for them, yeah. Yeah, I agree about that. It's not always rosy. So wrapping things up here, could you tell us about a time that you were brave? The thing that comes to mind is basically after finished building two startups, I think there was this inflection point where I was a bit tired, to be honest with you, from building two startups in, in consecutively in the last three years. 
I was unsure whether or not to venture into building a company on my own. So I really took uh, some time to think about it. I actually spent time as an ER in a, in a venture building firm and there was still not enough time. I took six months to travel, to clear my head, to really make sure that this was something I wanted to do. And because we started bootstrapping before we raised a, a seat round, it, it entailed putting in your own capital, right? putting my own money in. So this was also something that I needed a lot of courage to do. I think at the end of the day, what really allowed me to kind of make that decision was really just regret minimization. So I think all the pros and cons in the world can't really solve the answer to certain decisions in life. I was not sure if Nimbus was going to work out. Thankfully it did. But I think really what propelled me to make the choice was basically I don't want to regret, spend a life regretting that I could have done this. So I went back into building my own company instead of working for corporate, right? Which which would have been the obvious choice. So... Yeah, I'm glad I did that. And thanks for the opportunity to share this story, Jeremy. Yeah. I think that's a lot of good advice there. And I just want to ask you one quick question to follow up there is, you know, talk about regret minimization. What does that mean to you? Instead of like maximizing your expected payoff, meaning you, you kind of do the probabilities and you say like, you know, I lose this and then I extend to gain this. I think at least the way I am, I realize that I, I prefer to do things where I don't regret. So I don't choose an option where, where having failed to taken that, that path A, I, I always look back and say, I wish I know what path A would have been. And I think that's, that's to me, what, that's what regret minimization is. Yeah, it's like red pill, blue pill. You take a pill and then you look back and wish you'd taken the red pill or blue pill. I think that's the, the simple idea of regret minimization. Yeah, and I've always lived my life that way, actually, I, I, looking back. So it kind of makes sense in hindsight that there's a certain pattern of decisions that you tend to take. But yeah, that, that seems to be a big theme in, in major decisions that I make. You being a philosopher, it has been a big part of your life. I'm just kind of curious, what philosophy books or authors has been inspiration and how has that evolved? You know, which ones were more for you when you are younger versus which ones are more for you now, I guess? I was a philosopher of economics. Friedman's famous paper, every MBA student has read about the purpose of the firm being profit maximization was highly influential kind of writings that I typically enjoy as I grew older. When I was younger, I think Plato's Republic was still awesome. It was just pure abstraction about how you should build build an ideal society, recommend Rawls' theory of justice. I think I was very influenced by political philosophy. And I think this, this also shapes, I think, people that tend to do social impact stuff or social enterprise work or dealing with people of uh, low-wage workers. A lot of this kind of thing influenced you a lot. Definitely influenced my way of thinking about the world. And then as you grow older, you kind of balance it with economics. And so Friedman's stuff is amazing to, to read and to think why he's wrong or right. I think that he's a great thinker in that, in that sense. Yeah, I, I also admire the, the work of philosophers like David Hume, which talks a lot about philosophy of science. And Smith, right? Smith, Adam Smith was also a thinker, great write, philosophical writer as well. Really enjoyed his stuff. What's the place of philosophy in a world of technology where everything's moving faster and faster? Should we just chuck it all? <laughs> I, I think apart from flipping burgers as a skill set that equips you with, I think it equips you to think critically, zooms out, helps you to see, filter out noise and signal. And I think that that's, that's been helpful. And philosophy always encourages people to kind of take contrarian views. And I think this, is, this alludes to your point that, let's say, like we do facilities management. Ostensibly, it's a very unsexy business. Doing a subject like philosophy helps you be comfortable with being a bit different. I think that helps. I'm not saying that it got me there straight away. Brexit helped as well. But it helps you to be comfortable being different and to be comfortable with 
your train of thought because you reasoned it out and you basically sought the most intelligent counter-argument to your position and you feel that you're still right. That makes you more sure that you are you might be correct. And I think that helps me with my journey. For example, when you talk about when you face moments of doubt or when you look at other successful people around you, etc. I think I think having this good grip of, of yourself and contrarian thinking helps you to to know who you are and the journey that you're on. So yeah, I think that there's a role in philosophy. Not sure it helps you to see the future. I uh, don't think so, but I think it helps you to be comfortable being a bit more different. And I think we all know it, it takes a lot of bravery to be doing entrepreneurship in Southeast Asia. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. I'd love to wrap things up by summarizing the three big themes that I got from this discussion. The first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing your early journey from obviously school in London School of Economics and Oxford in philosophy to accidentally becoming an early employee at a company where someone was more of a chairman to someone where it was actually more of a VC-backed kind of company. And I love the learnings that you had as an early employee that lets you learn, I think, really about the different speeds of the company and how you would think about, as a result, the differences between more of a bootstrap or slower speed approach versus more of a VC-funded approach. And I love how you later bought that out later about the speed and the differences and how people should be thinking about it beyond the headlines and the nice offices and things like that. The second, of course, is I love the key takeaways about sexy businesses versus unsexy businesses, which is not just about the context of office and facilities management and the fact that cleaning businesses are actually often very rich businesses, even though they're very inefficient, but also in the context of also talking about what you learn that B2C often requires a bunch of optimizations that are, may not necessarily be fully optimized for profitability or for long-term sustainability, but more for customer experience or for fundraising or for highly competitive cannibalistic markets. I think you shared that in different environments and situations and examples you gave. So I think lots of different examples you gave, which were really helpful. And lastly, thank you so much for that little tidbit about your favorite philosophy. Lots of keywords for people to Google and how you think that philosophy isn't something that should be jumped, but lets you be contrary and have a divergent point of view for other people and lets you be a founder today. Thank you so much, Daniel, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.